Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm talking with Dr. Anthony Perillo about his research on counselors and psychologists as expert witnesses. This is episode 65 of Untenure Tracks. lately on forensic psychologists' decisions during their evaluations, and especially what leads to biased evaluations. Um, And this is an issue that has, it's long run near and dear to me. Uh, I am a licensed psychologist, so I've done forensic evaluations, and in my training over the years, I've seen where experts can disagree in a number of different ways, and I'll never forget early on in one of my earliest training experiences, um, seeing how strongly two people could disagree, even if they were evaluating the same person and would seemingly have access to the same information about a case where uh, for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, we were doing a competency evaluation and uh, my supervisor and I had done an evaluation found the person was there was no evidence of any mental health issues the person was making a lot of claims but they also been arrested for fraud and were standing trial for fraud Um, and there was an opposing expert that had also talked to this person had interpreted tests and said that this person had a psychotic disorder and that they were they had these very strong delusions making these big claims about owning these multi-million dollar home companies, uh, or multi-million dollar homes and these companies and all that, and that this person was psychotic and not competent to defend themselves at trial. Um, but we, there was evidence of these multi-million dollar, we had the bank statements, we followed <laughs> through and asked for this information. Um, and so it really emphasized to me that it's very, easy to make certain errors in an evaluation and that even if two people are coming up and looking at the same person uh, and looking at the same material, they can come up with very different conclusions depending on how they interpret that information and the questions that they ask after that or the questions that they don't ask after that, including, so you claim you own these companies, what are the names of them? And then I can go check out if these are actually real or not, rather than just assuming there's no way that this that this person actually has these companies. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate and I, I'm guessing there are people listening to this who really appreciate that you're coming to this from the perspective that um, these differences in evaluations could happen honestly <laughs> and, and not yes. just be like, uh, here, here's an expert witness that we're going to we're going to pay off to come in and testify, you know, because I think that probably within academia and even just like any lay people listening to this who whose experience with the justice system is. Uh, law and order marathons every Memorial yeah. Day it would be like, well, very clearly like this is, you know, this, this is not a good faith evaluation. Certainly. And 
that is that distinction is kind of what drew me to this mm-hmm. this line of work because there are certainly some situations where somebody is particularly biased toward a side they may even get a reputation and so one side consistently hires them kind of knowing that this side uh, if i hire this person they consistently tend to support the prosecution or this person con- consistently tends to support the defense um but what i was particularly intrigued by were these ideas of a lot of times people come into these evaluations not intending to do that um and nonetheless could we uh unintentionally tend to favor a side even if we know as our role and responsibility is actually not supposed to be i'm doing an evaluation for you i'm doing an evaluation to answer a certain question and so it might help you it might not help you but as an expert i'm supposed to be answering this question and it's really really hard in that in that kind of environment as a psychologist who is trained to be in a helping field mm-hmm. to then not help the person in front of you <laughs> or not explicitly try to help that person in front of you and so i saw very early on that it was really easy for us to disagree on similar cases and also had that same assumption that a lot of times maybe this person you know there's there's bad intentions there that perhaps the person particularly comes into the evaluation set for i'm going to help you find this person not competent or i'm going to help you find this person um criminally responsible uh but we've seen more and more particularly over the past decade decade and a half that this can really happen to anyone regardless of their the experiences or the beliefs they come into the room um entering for an evaluation uh there have been some really powerful studies um that look at how easy it is for qualified experts to look at the same person look at the same case and get very different opinions that always are pretty consistently so happen to be in favor of the side that referred them the case initially um there was a uh, there was particularly what drew me to this area of more of this unintentional bias um there was a there was a study by uh, Dan Murray and Mark Bacassini that um they basically um they tricked clinicians uh to doing consultations uh, for for a certain side they they thought that they were getting free training on doing certain types of evaluations and they were but the training was contingent on doing these consultate these free consultations afterwards uh-huh. which they didn't know was part of a study um and so they got trained to score certain measures measures on psychopathy and how to mm. assess sexual risk and all that and then afterwards they all agreed you know because of this free training i'm going to help you as free for free consult on these different cases here mm-hmm. um what they didn't know is that the person that had, was there saying that they were there as the consultation firm was a confederate they were not actually for a consultation firm and for for half the people they just subtly nudged them by saying um we work with a prosecution's office to show that you know sometimes people are you know really serious at risk um versus some of the people heard we work with a defense 
uh, attorney to show that not all people are as dangerous as we would assume. Mm-hmm. And that's basically, it's not the exact wording, but it was basically, that was the extent mm-hmm. of kind of the cue they got of what side was giving them this consultation service. And then they all got the exact same information. They got transcripts, they got background information, and the only difference was that initial little nudge of, who am I and why am I giving you this information? And what, what, the, what the researchers found was that um, it was pretty strong effect that if you got that little nudge that you were doing this consultation and the person in front of you was from the prosecution's office, that you tended to find more psychopathy in the person. You scored them higher on psychopathy, which would seemingly help a prosecutor's case that this person in front of me um, has very, very high levels of psychopathy. And if you were nudged that you're doing this consultation for the defense, your scores on that psychopathy measure for that person were much lower, suggesting lower levels of psychopathy, which, of course, would help a defense. And so they really demonstrated here in an experiment here just that little subtle power of referral suggestion could really nudge how people interpreted the exact same pieces of information. Um, I, I love this. <laughs> I, I love this because this is like King Kong versus Godzilla of like two, two areas of our lives where we expect there to be like a uh, complete absolute objectivity <laughs> where where we know like that does that's not really there right like um we know we know the court is not about finding the truth it's about finding the story that makes sense um and there's there's no obligation for prosecutors or or defense attorneys to to be uh honest <laughs> i i yeah. suppose and we know like in therapy right like there's there tends to be a, a major like white middle class kind of slant to stuff correct yeah uh and so seeing these two titans of like fake objectivity clash is is from like a pure podcast dork perspective who talks a lot about objectivity on this show i am delighted (laughs) i'm delighted right now the psychologist is or psychiatrist or whatever whatever expert we're we're hiring here is intending to enter that arena as the quote-unquote objective person that has this kind of unique knowledge where we need to leave the traditional court system and say hey you know what there's this complex info that we don't know we need an expert in this area to help us answer this question they are the objective quote-unquote truth seekers Um, but we're not we're not objective people where our mission is to be impartial but we we are hit by our own personal and external biases in our professional life and our personal life. And I mean, you can, you can really see it in this work. Um, I know in fact that when this study was starting to come out, there were a couple of forensic professionals that had talked to the, uh, the scholars that were starting this going, I don't know if you want to really go down this path um, basically saying that we are all biased and you know that we all have these kinds of (laughs) vendettas and our work is not as scientific as we claim to be um but it was really important to know how easy it is for all of us that seemingly intend to come in and help give quote-unquote objective information to the court to see how easily it can be for us to be swayed and for our judgment to end up helping 
a side that we unintentionally align ourselves with a little bit mm-hmm. more. Yeah. And, and maybe even taking that a step further, like how maybe, I don't know if cunning is the right word. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say devious because I don't want to paint every person working for the court as like this <laughs> evil mastermind, but like there's something there, right? Where like, we know that psychologists are in this helping profession and have this tendency, I think, to want to help the people that they're working with. And so if I'm like, hey, like, just BT dub, like, I work with prosecutors to help them show X, Y, and Z, like, triggering something maybe subconsciously within the therapist that they're working with to be like, okay, well, I, I want to help this person prove yeah. this thing, you know? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go further with more, uh, <laughs> I'll go with some unintentional or maybe sometimes intentional sinister motivations. Of <laughs> sinister. Yeah. Too. I like that's a good word. Um, the way this process works also from the outside, you can have an attorney refer you the case and they want, they want you to consult on this case. They might not be asking you or hiring you to write a report yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you might get paid to write the report and then you might get paid to testify. Mm-hmm. Well, The way that system is set up, you know that an attorney is not going to hire you to write a report if in your consultation it's not going to help them. They're not going to say, well, you you know, although this doesn't help me, you did a fantastic job, so why don't I go ahead and pay you to write this report (laughs) that's going to harm my case. They're going to say thank you for your time. Um, Maybe I'll go find someone else. Maybe I'll go get a plea or something like this, but I don't need your services anymore. Yeah. so there actually is um, the way that our, our adversarial system is set up. There can be some unintentional incentives there um, that we don't we might not even be aware of or not might not be deliberately intending to say, well, you know, I, I, I got I got some bills to pay. So let me help for this side. Not suggesting that at all here. Um, but this idea that, you know, knowing that down the road, um, my continued work here is kind of contingent on whether people like my work. Yep. And in this kind of combative situation, um, the people that are going to like your work are the people who it's going to help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like there's so many things that I, I want to say that you're like dredging up for me. Um, it, it reminds me of like a, a broader criticism that people have leveled against criminology over the past. I mean, I've seen it a lot in the past couple of years specifically about how like we are, we're making our careers on the, on the backs of predominantly people of color who have been um, abused by an abusive system an oppressive system. And like, it's, it's extraordinarily rare to see academics acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And how, how is that really truly ethical? You know what I mean? And sure. so like what you're describing is, I mean, it's a little bit apples to oranges, I suppose, but you know, the, the therapist who does like realize that their, their continued employment, um, and however much they're making off that employment is contingent upon making their bosses happy. Like you would expect in any other job. Um, you know, that that's perfectly fine until you realize that like there's somebody sitting at that, that defense table, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. who, whose life is like literally hanging in the balance. And I'm, I have the ability to sway that and it's like, well, this could, this could be my car payment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we, and I mean, we find that pretty consistently in, in court hearings, when you hire, when you hire an expert to give an opinion on any kind of these psychological issues that juries and judges tend to 
defer to that expert's judgment about 90, 95% of the time. Um, so experts have considerable influence on people's civil liberties um, and their freedom when conducting these kinds of evaluations. And that's partly why the mission is to be accurate, to be impartial, and to be objective. Um, but it's really hard to meet that mission. And so mm-hmm. that's partly also why a lot of my work has been trying to focus on better understanding where and why this bias occurs so that we can um, try to, I think it is way too lofty a goal to say eliminate bias. Um, always talking about reducing mm-hmm. bias um, in order to assist courts with that information um, in, in as low a biased way as possible. So yeah, that, I, I want to bring this back to what you're working on, and apologize for my uh, spontaneous <laughs> celebration of of well, celebration is the wrong word. I, I geeked out. Um, so how how do these unintentional biases happen? So the the issue is that we have tried to solve this issue of bias and saying oh we got we got to come up with a way to reduce this bias and we have there's understandable motivation of why we should do that but we've been doing that before understanding why these biases happen and so a lot of the issues then um because of that we've as i say we're we're putting the cart before the horse a little bit in a lot of things that we've done to try to reduce this bias. And partly it's because we haven't actually demonstrated yet when, when this bias occurs, why it occurs. I have my ideas. I have you know some projects that I'm working on right now, a project that we wrapped up as well that gets more at understanding when and why these biases happen. Um, but ultimately we have to understand the bias first before we can know exactly how to, how to properly address it. Okay, so then what what do you think the next steps are then? So part of that is um, some studies that I'm running right now. And I think, so I've been doing, I, I had a study recently that we have, we have under, under review that there is this, there's this recommendation for reducing bias that is going to sound way more exciting or kinky than it actually is. Um, it's colloquially called hot tubbing. Um, so it's the it's the hot tubbing study that we've been working on. And everybody's going to uh, stop listening right now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the more bo- the more boring title is concurrent expert testimony. That's mm-hmm. really what it is. Um, mm-hmm. the, the whole idea was that well, what if instead of you have your expert. I have my expert. You get cross-examined by the uh, the other attorney. What if experts from two different sides collaborate on a report together mm-hmm. and highlight where they agree and disagree and then testify on the stand together um, and talk to each other instead of having attorneys asking the questions? And the idea here was that like, it would shift your alliance from I'm working with a side to I'm working with a colleague who can call me out if I haven't done as good a job as possible, who also has professional qualifications, has seen the same person. And if they disagree with me, uh, instead of me more being anointed toward a side, 
I'm going to more associate with this expert. We're going to consult on this case together, reach an understanding, and then talk about this case on the stand together. So I have to be on my game. I have to be as objective as possible. I have to be accurate. And then we will get up together and give an understanding to the courts. Um, you seem skeptical about this. I mean, anybody who's been to a conference before, so I'm I'm <laughs> laughing because in my mind I'm envisioning like two old guys in suits like crammed into a witness box together. Well, that's <laughs> Yeah, it's because people saw two people, you know, standing up in the box and go, oh, it looks like two people just, you know, lounging out in the hot tub. It's, so. I don't know why. It's like, I'm really tickled by this image of these, these two guys and then getting like mad at each other and just being in this like really confined space. But I mean, like, I, uh, I don't know. I, I totally understand why. Um, where, why the idea has merit. I would love to see it in action. Having been to so many conferences, I, I just wonder, I, I pity the jury who has to listen to <laughs> a couple of blowhard expert witnesses kind of talk at each other. Um, but, it, but it'd be really curious, like, to see how, how that collaboration would go if, yeah. if, if these are experts who aren't just hired guns. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're so, they're in it for the they're in it for the work and not they're in it for the right reasons I guess is what I'm trying to say. So so we my my uh, colleagues and I tested this. Yeah, um, we've we've done we've done a study on on hot tubbing or concurrent expert testimony, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Here. This episode um, is going to be called hot tubbing. That, hot that tubbing. clearly is All the right. title. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> of course, of course, we. This is. I know, I'm also kind of excited. This will be my article, my first article of the pun, and it, it is testing the waters because it is a test on hot tubbing. Oh, um, oh! Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review <laughs> that five star joke. I, I first wanted hot tub bias machine, but I got rejected by, by my collaborators. Um, well, shame on them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we settled for testing the waters. Um, but we had we had um, forensic forensic experts come in to review. Um, they were going to do a mock insanity evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, look at look at recorded materials, um, and then also review police records, hospital records, testing data, all that stuff, and do an insanity evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the people were going to do it under our traditional system. They were hired by a defense attorney, hired by a prosecutor, and go through the traditional process. Um, but we had some people that, even though they were hired by that process, also were going to were told ahead of time, um, "You're going to be testifying in this procedure called concurrent expert testimony. At the end of all of this, you are going to develop a joint report with someone that's been hired by." The other side, mm -hmm. you're going to testify together, ask each other questions, basically how they would recommend setting this up so that you know ahead of time mm -hmm. before you've even started the evaluation that, all right, by the end of this, I am going to be talking with an expert that mm -hmm. was hired by that other side and we have to collaborate on a report together. Mm -hmm. um, and we we did all of that. We did all of that procedure. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we, in fact, did. It was a very it's a multi-stage study that for the for the concurrent or hot tubbing condition there culminated in um our participants from those sides actually physically meeting together after they had written their little their their um abbreviated reports mm -hmm. um and they 
they met together in our uh, in our institution and they talked about their reports and they wrote another abbreviated report of where they agreed mm-hmm. where they disagreed and why they disagreed mm. and the idea here is that with under concurrent expert testimony is that it actually would help jurors to hear two experts kind of highlight where they agree mm-hmm. and then they can focus and discuss a little bit more of this is where we disagree and this is where we're coming from mm-hmm. on these areas and it might like just clear up all the areas of where there's consensus among the two experts and let them focus more on where each side is coming from and let the jurors hear directly from the experts about where there might be a difference of opinion and they might be able to understand the info better um, but the I, but we we looked at all of this and what we saw was for our adversarial um, experts again we saw that power of what we call adversarial allegiance that although they all looked at the exact same materials the people that were hired by the prosecution um pretty strongly found judgments in favor of the prosecution and said this person was criminally responsible at the time um yes they had a mental disease but they knew what they were doing or they knew what they were doing was wrong and the people that had been hired by the defense found the reverse they said this person was not criminally responsible um at the time of the evaluation they were insane so to speak mm-hmm. um we saw the exact same trend in concurrent expert testimony it did not nudge the needle one bit wow um, we also we assessed their uh their judgments incrementally throughout the evaluation process so mm-hmm. after they reviewed all the information on the case they gathered a they offered a preliminary judgment mm-hmm. after they wrote their report they offered a preliminary judgment after they testified they offered a preliminary judgment and in both conditions whether it was under the traditional adversarial process or the concurrent process you can see just kind of these parallel bars the judgments of experts were very different on sides and they did not waver wow uh, so for the concurrent experts we even saw that after they had talked with another um expert that disagreed with them on several key areas their opinions stayed exactly the same hmm. in favor of the side that had okay. originally hired them wow so I have, I have two questions. I, I guess they're both methods questions, maybe. Um, sure. So, no, the first isn't methods, it's more process, I guess. So, like, for for courts that do utilize this this approach, what does it what does it look like like during a trial? So do do so you said that like both experts would go stand in the in the box or behind the box or whatever at the same time? Are they both? questioned and then cross-examined like like in a like the typical adversarial kind of way would there it differs a little bit and so there's there's some processes in australia there are some in some civil arenas in canada um and i'm forgetting there's one or two other countries that might have implemented this in very specific contexts but it hasn't been very widely practiced um generally speaking in some of these times they have had the attorneys do have an opportunity to ask some brief setup questions and some clarifying cross-examination kind of questions. Mm-hmm. But that at its heart, it's still the the main focus is on the two experts asking each other questions. Um, 
talking to each other about the case mm-hmm. where they can first present to the jury this idea of, you know, these are the areas that we are both on the on the same page of. You know, we both reviewed this person A, A B, C. And these are the areas that we disagree. This is my stance. Mm-hmm. Second expert might say, this is my stance. And they start to ask each other back and forth questions about how you arrive at that, how you explain my alternative mm-hmm. opinion and things like that. And as it wraps up, um, I think in some context, the judge can ask some clarifying questions as well. And then each attorney does have some sort of opportunity to ask mm-hmm. some some clarification questions. Too. Okay. Yeah, I was just trying to imagine like how it would play out in, a, in an actual trial. And so it sounds like the court would call the experts rather than like prosecution or the defense. The, the court says we're going to hear from our experts today, similar to how like if there was a... If there was a, a cause to take a jury to a crime scene or something mm-hmm. like that, like today's the day we're going to go to the crime scene. Today's the day we're going to hear we're going to hear the experts talk. Right. Today's yeah. Today's the day we're going to hear from our experts. And it's talk and about. it's not like the prosecution calls their person and then the defense cross examines them, and the defense calls their person, and the prosecution cross examines them. It's just kind of a a separate. With the idea of it kind of having maybe a semblance of neutrality because it's coming from the court. You know what I mean? Right. Like here's yeah, that you, you shift you shift this idea that right now we are presenting the prosecution's case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now we are presenting information specifically on this issue of the psychological evaluation. Yeah. Um. My my other question, and I guess this is like the method slash like future work. Maybe. Um. Has there has there been anything done, or have you thought at all about studying how juries perceive? Um the collaborative experts differently than the individual ones. That was part of this study too. Uh, so, <laughs> nice. so I am, I am not a, I'm not an author on that part. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mainly stayed on the, the clinical expert phase of this study. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did also have, have jurors that heard this hot tubbing procedure mm-hmm. and all the other testimony. Um, and, rated them on their their comprehension their mm-hmm. understanding of the material um their experiences with it mm-hmm. uh, that'll be another paper that comes out from from the team um in the not too not too distant future um so my my tentative understanding i won't, don't want to go into too much detail yeah. because i don't know the specifics of but, course uh, this this does get into the fact that uh, although my, the conclusions of the study that i've been a part of kind of you know, hammer this idea, well, concurrent expert testimony isn't really effective. It's like, well, we have to ask ourselves the question of what is what is the goal of this testimony? And it's not mm-hmm. purely to reduce bias among experts. Now, for that mission, um, there is a lack of evidence right now, at the very least, to suggest it reduces that kind of bias. Mm-hmm. Um, but some preliminary look might suggest that there is some benefit to jurors in terms of being able to understand particularly complex information. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that in cross-examination, some of the questions, some of the motivations there can be non-linear, make, make things as confusing as possible, present a bunch of information that um, is more likely to sound incoherent or throw someone off their game. That can also really confuse jurors about yeah. what they're listening to. Um, and so um, it is possible, although I see what my, what my uh, collaborators would interpret from their results and all that, that there mm-hmm. might be some benefit nonetheless for jurors. In terms yeah. of understanding the information, even if that information itself isn't as neutral yeah. as we had intended it to be. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I thought about it as as you were talking about that it 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 didn't have any effect on um the the positions um of of the experts themselves as they're working together, but then just kind of wondering like, well, that that I mean that, that clearly just speaks to like how powerful the that allegiance is, right? That you you talked right. about. Um, but then if it if it ultimately helps juries make better decisions then clearly it's it's beneficial but um i don't i don't want to make you i don't want to have you talk about stuff that it's not <laughs> it's not in your your wheelhouse um right but yeah i mean all that i mean i think that's an important lesson for all of us in our work though is to you know we all come into our work for a specific reason to answer a specific question um some and some of us that look at policy and practice issues and these these issues don't work in a vacuum, and there might be multiple purposes for a certain type of practice or a certain type of procedure. Um, so we can't we can't always wave our research and say this doesn't work. Throw it all, throw this process all down. Mm-hmm. There might be other issues that are relevant to that that process that we need to consider. Mm-hmm. So yes, if the goal here, if the only goal here was we're going to reduce expert bias, and I'm not, I'm not so sure about this practice. Yeah. But there's much more to it than that. The goal of a, you know the goal of a court is far more than to reduce bias in experts. And some of the point there is that you know do these jurors understand the information better? Yeah. So there might be some strengths or some benefits to this process, and we have to weigh those together. Yeah. Um, in order to determine how to proceed. For sure. So yeah. do you think do you think the hot tubbing didn't work because it was? Do you think it was entirely because of that allegiance, or do you think there was something else going on? Um, I think part of the issue is that, as you could see by the way that we measured judgments, you saw the allegiance effect immediately. Yeah. Early on, before they had talked to the other expert. Mm -hmm. And the the quote-unquote intervention here of concurrent expert testimony had happened after people had already seen the person after they had made some preliminary judgments, mm-hmm. like we do in clinical practice, it, it comes in very late in the process after mm-hmm. we've kind of already made up our minds. Mm-hmm. We feel pretty comfortable, pretty confident about our decisions. And anybody that's been in a f- philosophical or political debate with anyone knows if you go in really confident and quote unquote done your research ahead of time and you're listening to someone's alternate view, a lot of times when you're listening there, you're not listening to learn as much as you're listening to counteract. Uh, yeah. How do I, you know, I'm, I'm here's the alternative side. I'm going to counter that. And now, actually, I feel even more confident yep. in my original stance than I did before. And that was some of the, the some of the concerns that, um, that we had about concurrent expert testimony is that it happens so late in the process mm-hmm. um, that it's not going to have that that debiasing effect on experts where I'm not really seeing your side because I'm not I'm not listening or I've already ingrained my process as much and I can't. I'm having a hard time integrating your perspective, given all the decisions and all the judgments I've already made about this case. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to throw knock the entire tower down here. And so I think a lot of the idea here is we've got to hit the process of an evaluation much earlier in mm-hmm. order to reduce bias, rather than waiting until people have already made their conclusions to talk to an expert post-evaluation. The debiasing techniques, whatever we do to reduce bias uh, among forensic experts, it needs to happen early on in the process because we see the bias Mm -hmm. immediately and very early on in the process. Mm -hmm. 
That's so interesting. Like you, you discovered Twitter in real life, basically. <laughs> um so i'm i'm curious how how are you able to to bring your your research into the classroom and like what i I have to imagine that your students must have some pretty um visceral reactions to some of your work especially some of my work with uh, sexual violence in particular um uh that's that was my primary area prior to broadening into forensic decision making. But I primarily did policy assessment stuff related to people that had committed sex crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be really hard to talk about those those subjects with students. And mm-hmm. part of the importance in when I talk about those issues is we talk about what the goal of the conversation is, mm-hmm. as well as the goal of understanding these issues in general. Um, and before we end up getting into any kind of disagreements, we see that a lot of us agree on the same issue that sexual violence is a very, a very serious issue, um, that we don't want any more offenses, um, that a lot of times some of the, some of the issues with doing sexual violence risk assessments, how likely is somebody to reoffend? Well, in order to assess if somebody's a risk to reoffend, they've already offended, and that means there's already a victim, and that's already one victim too many. Um, that we're all on the same page in terms of we want fewer victims. We want to find and understand ways to decrease sexual violence. We might disagree on what is the best way to go about doing that or what kind of practices would actually meet that goal. But reminding ourselves that of the the goal of all of this, even if we have some disagreements about why people um, commit certain types of offenses or what practices would be most effective toward that mission, the mission is actually much more shared than we often feel in those discussions, which is to reduce sexual violence. We want no more victims. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that seems to help set the groundwork um, when I start bringing up some sexual violence legislation and practices that we do that, you know, I used to say well-intended but misguided um, different types of interventions to reduce sexual violence that it can sound like if we're saying, well, these these things don't work, so we shouldn't do these things to people that commit sexual violence. It can sound like what you're saying there is that you are supporting people that have committed sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea and what I tell people is that all these all these focuses, different kind of laws that we focus on, we don't have a finite number of resources. We mm-hmm. can't do everything. And so if we focus 95% of our attention and resources on 5% of the problem, mm-hmm. we only have 5% left to deal with 95% of the problem. Mm-hmm. So are we actually reducing sexual violence in as effective way mm-hmm. as we can if we're focusing all of our resources in an area that doesn't really seem to be reducing sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Now, in turn, what kinds of things do reduce sexual violence and what kinds of laws are effective? What kinds of practices are effective? If we focus on those, some of them sound a little bit more lenient if we actually support um, reintegration efforts and community-based treatment and primary prevention efforts and all of that, it can sound like we're being soft, so to speak. But if that is actually 
what is being demonstrated to reduce offending and reduce sexual violence, then that's as tough on sexual violence as you can be mm-hmm. by actually reducing it from occurring. Um, so it all comes back to just that reminder of what is the end game here that we all have a shared goal, mm-hmm, fewer mm-hmm. victims, reduce sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And so bringing that perspective back to the forefront, I think brings students to be a bit more receptive to those mm-hmm. kinds of talks that can be really hard to have. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm asking this because of the, the people listening, I think would be mad if I didn't. And I, I know this isn't the primary reason that we're talking, but because you, you mentioned it several times, I just want to ask for a clarification. So when you're having these conversations with students, what do you tell them does not work in terms of reducing sexual violence? Like what are the specific policies or, or programs or, or whatever punishments um, that that you would say in your in your classes this is not this is this is addressing five percent of, of the issue is this really a worthwhile thing like did you have something in mind there or uh, I, I present a number of different sexual violence legislation issues mm-hmm. but we tend to talk about issues of residence restrictions mm-hmm. um, this whole idea that if you've committed um, a sexual offense that you can't live X number of feet from an area that children are near, like a school, a bus, mm-hmm. a playground, and things like that. Um, we talk about, we have to take a step back and go, all right, what is what are the assumptions? Mm-hmm. What are the purpose of those laws? Well, if we're trying to distance people from places where children, schools, and playgrounds and all that, it, it, bring, it can bring up a certain image that um, people that commit sex crimes are looking for unsupervised children that they don't know. Um, the, the whole image of people, you know, behind the bushes looking for, looking for a victim and finding them. And, you know, of course that does happen. Mm-hmm. But when we look at what that's focused on, we find that, you know, most people that commit acts of sexual violence commit them against people that they know commit them in their private residences. Um, it, it's not these, these stranger cases um, that a lot, of our, um, a lot of our laws seem to focus on. And at the, in fact, the other unintended consequences, there are a number of issues where we think about, if you think about how a, a town or a school or a city is um, organized, it's organized so that everybody is near a school as reasonably as possible, mm-hmm. that these areas are kind of dispersed around around an area. And so you do hear these, these areas uh, or these issues of in certain towns or certain areas of people literally being homeless because they cannot live anywhere mm-hmm. in the city. And mm-hmm. sometimes the, the reaction to that is, well, good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can understand the emotional reaction to that. Um, but we also, we also know that things that, when we look at people and observe the, the decades of follow-ups with people that have pre- previously committed sex crimes and look at who has gone on to commit another sex crime, who has not gone on to commit another sex crime, and what are some differences between them, um, we see some consistent patterns of increased risk for sexual violence. And a lot of those go back to broader life stability. It includes employment. It includes um, close social support. It includes general life satisfaction. And we see that with residence restrictions as one broad example here. If you're talking about homelessness and pushing people out of the city, well, what have we done? 
We have decreased the odds of employment stability. We sure as hell have decreased the odds of housing stability. Mm -hmm. Um, We isolate people from the social supports that, again, it sounds like you're being it sounds like you're being soft or being nice to say we'll give people social support. We know that social support is is important and integral to general life satisfaction and to successful rehabilitation in general. And that and then on the flip side, that feeling perceiving lack of support, feeling lonely, feeling down, feeling unstable in life increases risk for sexual violence um, and violence in general. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So this is where it comes back to we initially say good, have these people uh, on the streets, but it's it can unintentionally set up this recipe that we know increases risk for sexual violence in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean not just sexual violence but but multiple types of of violent behavior and 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 you know nonviolent criminal deviancy. Right. Um, so you're, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, um, that sometimes students come into classes like yours, uh, with a lot of (laughs) deep breath. (laughs) The good thing or not, this is not a video, (laughs) video Uh podcast. Um, coming to, coming to classes like, like yours with maybe some preconceived notions about what the work is going to be about. Um, what what types of of uh expectations do your students have coming into your classes and then how do you um respond to those profiling 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 is pretty much <laughs> what the expectations are i want to be a profiler i want to understand why people um do things and catch people that are you know that are wanted for certain offenses i want to work for the fbi all those things and um my my wife is a, a psychology and law professor in our same institution. We teach these kinds of courses from very different angles, but we what we share in common in it is that we have a professional development day um, that you know on the aside we call the the crush your dreams course, and that is our discussion <laughs> of profiling is not forensic psychology. Um, mm-hmm. It was it's it's a law enforcement focus area. Um, there are very few profilers out there. You are going to be a special agent hired within to be a profiler, and it's pretty much not going to happen for you. <laughs> um, and if that is the only reason that you want to enter that field. I say, all right, I'm not going to just say it's not going to happen for you. What I'm going to say is, well, okay, let's see. Let's see if you're going to be one of the five or six people that are profilers. What do you have to do? I was like, well, you know, you're going to need to enter the law enforcement field. You're going to need to become a special agent. You're going to need to have decades of experience as a special agent. And then when someone retires, resigns, or there is an opening, then you will apply for it among all the other in-house special agents and see if you get selected. Mm-hmm. That is quite a gamble to, uh, if you're going to put all your eggs in that basket, and that is the only reason that you're in this class. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I kind of, I kind of set that up. Now, if, if the person is ultimately interested in more of investigation of crimes, that is helpful to know. Mm-hmm. And in fact, no matter what, with a student, if they tell me this is what I want, 
um, before I get into crushing those dreams, so to speak, I ask a one word question always. And I tell them it's coming every time. And sometimes they don't expect it anyway. They say, I want to be this. I always ask why. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what is it about what, one, what is your understanding of that job? And what is it about that job that interests you? Mm-hmm. And the idea here is not for me to then deviate you from that interest, but it's actually to more open the door and get an understanding of what are your motivations? What are your passions? What are your interests? And we might be able to actually explore some related areas that hit on what you actually like or think you like about this. Mm-hmm. That would be a fit for for your for your area yeah what you're actually interested in so it's always come back to not just what do you want to do but what is it about that why do you what what interests you about why people commit offenses what mm-hmm. is it about this area that what is it about the law that fascinates you what is it about offending that fascinates you um and from there we can open the door to a number of different careers and jobs that are related to that that will that might actually fit what you're going for yeah, those conversations are always so fascinating about like why do you want to do this job, right? Because we it allows us to see like all of the ways that they've been influenced by media portrayals mm-hmm. of of what they think the work is. Um Certainly. and and it's also kind of disheartening because uh, at least in my experience a lot of students think that the only way that they can help their community is by going into law enforcement and mm-hmm. and that couldn't be further from the truth. Right. As, as everybody listening to this show is, is well aware, like I'm not saying anything groundbreaking. There, there are hundreds of jobs that you could have to, to benefit your community, to help, help your community out in, in really meaningful ways that are, that are not being a cop. And so it's so it's funny. I do so one of the other clinical practices I still do right now, um, I supervise grad students. We do um, suitability evaluations for the police academy. Um, so I so I interview cadets and determine their psychological suitability before they uh, they enter the police academy and and you know there's a whole uh, all stuff related to that but that's that's what we consistently hear about why are you entering law enforcement I want to help people it's like well that's also the same answer that people say why they want to be a therapist it's yep. also the same answer why people want to be a teacher why they mm-hmm. want to be a nurse why they want to be a physician whatever it is yep. you know the helping fields are really wide and so if i have an undergraduate in particular that says i want to be i, I want to be an officer because i want to help people it's like what do you want to help people with yeah or <laughs> what is it you know what is it really important to help people about um so that i can get at is it really about is it really about helping people um, or how much of it is about helping people? How much of it is about community safety and all that? And mm-hmm. like, even if that's where they're going, um, at least if they hear themselves say that out loud, it can make them then are, you know, process if how much of this is what I truly believe and help navigate that path and then make their, their point for themselves even stronger as they approach that is this idea of, you mm-hmm. know what, I, I kind of approach this as this idea of wanting to help people. But you know what, when it comes down to it, I want to make people safer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to make I want to do that by working with the community across the board. And you know what, you're staying on the same path you were before, but mm-hmm. you have a very different understanding of what your what your purpose or what your goal is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and could then potentially like, discover a a passion or a talent that you didn't know that you had right Certainly. um yeah. by by going in a different direction um my favorite dream crushing story uh that i have i don't think i've ever told this on here before we had um a special agent come in 
to talk to a, a, a auditorium, a lecture hall full of students who were all uh, at, at 11 a.m. that day. They were all hopeful FBI future special agents, right? And so he, he comes in and he gives them, you know, um, the full rundown of his career. Um, he he was an accountant before he got into the FBI, um, and he told them about how he treated that as his first undercover undercover gig. He hated accounting. Um, but he got four zero in all of his classes and it was like a good talk. You know, he, he talked about like the physical, uh, fitness standards and, um, how the, the bureau expects their agents to be good people, which is like something that, um, differentiates them from like the uh, traditional law enforcement, right? Like they have to be doing, they have to be charitable and, and do community service. And like my students were mostly on board with that. But then at the end, um, I raised my hand and I, I said, there's a question that they have for you, um, but they're, they're afraid to ask it. Um, and so I know that it's, it's floating in the, in the ether. So I'm going to ask it for them, um, which is, uh, what is the Bureau's stance on past marijuana usage? <laughs> and, and he, to his credit, I mean, I'm sure he's been asked this like a trillion times. He straight face, very professional. Like, I, I think he said, if you, if you've been clean, if you haven't used for 10 years or whatever, um, you know, it's fine. The FBI recognizes that this is something, this is a mistake that lots of college students experiment with or, or whatever he said. And so I was like, okay, you know, you know, thank you so much for your time. Um, and I went up to one of the classrooms after and they're like, Dr. Wilzak, you crushed my dreams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why yeah. did you ask him about the pot? <laughs> <laughs> 10 years i'd have to Ten quit years. right now <laughs> like yeah. like well like honestly you're you weren't going to be a special agent anyway but like you had to know that you know yeah and and you're and you're not you're not telling them you can never be one but you're telling them <laughs> you, you you might need a 10-year plan a uh, 10-year you plan might, yeah, you're you're not going to sit and wait for that, at least. So in the meantime, now you know what kind of what kind of careers uh, will set you up for the things that you really like are related. To yeah. This. And then you can say if you want to stay in there, and then ten years, uh, hey, you know. Yeah, ten years if you if you yeah. stayed clean. Um, and yeah, they were they were really put off by by that and the the upper limit on the age the the hiring age too. They were they're like, but if I quit now, <laughs> and they. And they won't hire me after 37 or whatever it was. Then that right. means I only have like a four-year eligibility <laughs> to be an agent. Is it even worth it? Like, well, again, like you weren't, this wasn't going to happen for you anyway. But now that you've been confronted with like yeah. the the logistics behind why it's not going to happen, like it's better better now than to hear from you like three years after graduation with your, your kind of half- half-assed plan to join the bureau you know what i mean yeah and i love in those conversations to be able to you know you you have someone that can also discuss what the not just what the job is but what the day is or what the day-to-day aspect of it is that you know whether it's whether it's within you know whether it's within a bureau of investigation or some forensic psych work and all that it's like a lot of it's paperwork um (laughs) A lot of a lot of it is behind a desk, uh-huh. um, and so I, I, I talk students through the ins and outs of you know forensic psych work too, and not just what kinds of evaluations I do, but from point A to point testify, what does it actually look like from the day to day? 
of doing that job. Um, and they can see, well, you know, it's not, it's not glitzy or glamorous at all. Um, and you have a few that say, you know what, that, that, that fits my life or that is, that is still, that is the stuff that I want to do. But it's important for students to have these, these understandings of what, you know, what they're getting themselves into. If they want to do this, what, if they want to do this work, what is the actual work going to be like? Yeah. That's going to, that's going to impact your quality of life, your day to day, how excited you are to get into work every day. Yeah. If you, if you don't like, or, or can't do these sorts of mundane assignments in class, and, and the writing that that seems trivial and, and honestly oftentimes is is kind of trivial yeah. then you're not going to you're not cut out for a career doing mundane writing <laughs> that or trivial writing like, all the time you know basic basic reports and or even just like the volume of email right that you have yeah. to you have to be thoughtful about um especially mm-hmm. with you know your your higher ups you can't you can't fire off like the one sentence like text kind of emails that you might to to your friends or to a professor, you know, like if, right. you, if you can't handle that bureaucracy, then you gotta, you gotta find something else to do. Right. You're gonna, you're gonna scroll through a lot of documents. You're gonna write a lot. You're gonna write a lot, a lot, a lot, whether it's mm-hmm. in a doc file or emails and all that, you're going to be calling people. You're going to be waiting for people to call you back. Yep. Um, and you have to you have to say what am i doing this for and is this something i could see myself doing day in and day out mm-hmm. i think that's a good spot to wrap this up <laughs> a good a good uh realistic note um yeah. for people listening um thank you so much for your time oh yeah sure thing. thanks for having me Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.